thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 132. Put down your tea, take your hand off that biscuit, and watch out for that lorry because it's UK month. That's right, February is nothing but British aircraft, guests, and jargon that will make even Her Majesty the Queen chuffed. And it all starts this week with a look at the English Electric Lightning. Blimey! Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. All right, I know, that was pretty bad. I can hear the groans already. Well, bear with me. I've only been to the U.K. once, and... That was just for a gas stop on my way to the Netherlands. And, you know, to be honest, I don't even remember what base we stopped at, but it was in F-18s back in 99 on the JFK. Otter, you were my wingman out there. If you remember, help me out because I don't know. But anyway, hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Jello. This is episode 132. And we are talking all about the English eclectic, I'm sorry, the English electric lightning And that was actually on purpose, because as you'll find out, this thing is a bizarre aircraft. But anyway, our guest will be retired Air Force Squadron Leader Ian Black, and he'll be along shortly. But anyway, what's up? Man, it's a new month. It's a relatively new year still, and I hope all is well with you. Uh, Not so for our friends on the USS Carl Vinson. You probably saw this in the news. They're the star of our Sharpening the Spear episode back in the summer of 19, and they lost an F-35C on their inaugural Air Wing of the Future deployment. And there's some imagery and video already starting to leak. In fact, the Navy acknowledged both of those are real. And from all accounts, it looks like a ramp strike, but that is just from what I can tell from seeing things. And I haven't heard any inside baseball. So we'll find out later when the mishap board does their thing. And maybe someday we'll get some plat footage of it too. But yeah, I don't know. Be interesting to hear uh, what happened there because I was fishing with my buddy Grand recently from episode seven and we were talking about the magic carpet or precision landing mode and he said it's pretty much foolproof. So I'm a little nervous, but we'll see. And yeah, there's been some F-35 mishaps. Some of you have commented on YouTube and elsewhere. We had the Marine B model off the HMS Queen Elizabeth, off HMS Queen Elizabeth, I was once corrected, last November. And they did pull that up, and I'm sure they'll do the same thing with the C model that just crashed, because we don't want anyone else picking it up. Also, I don't know if you saw in the news, but the Emirati F-16s have been attacking Houthi targets in Yemen, because they were launching missiles at the UAE, which is really crazy. But I saw some pretty cool footage of them blowing up the uh, launchers. So good on them, but I don't know what's going on around the world. It's kind of crazy. 
Uh, and then if you caught any football last weekend, let's see, it was the playoffs for the Super Bowl. You might have seen Tom Cruise make an appearance using his Top Gun Maverick movie that he was leading into the football games. But I hope that means he's leading into the debut in May because we've been waiting a long time for this thing and we've got big plans here at the show. I'm really hoping we are going to finally get to see that movie. Now, speaking of shows, we've got the El Centro Air Show coming up on March 12th. I am hoping to attend, but the following weekend, my mother has a big birthday milestone, and I've got to bid that weekend off as the priority, duh, with my airline. So if I can get two weekends off in a row, I will uh, make it out to the El Centro Air Show. I'll know that by mid-February, and so hopefully by, gosh, I guess the next episode, right, I will be able to let you know, and then just check it out on social media. I'll let you know where we're going to be or what I'm wearing or I don't know, something for the outer layer, that is. You know, if we can meet at an F-18 or somewhere else, then uh, we'll hopefully be uh, able to say hello and high five and have a good time at the show. And then lastly, I want to thank my buddy James over at Retro Pilot for the latest batch of old style stickers he sent me. Now, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you know, like his suitcase or trunk, he's got those really old style stickers and different things on them. Well, that's what retro stickers do. They do it for the modern av geek. Go over to retro-pilot.com and you can see their stickers on just about every aircraft, certainly every aircraft we've talked about here on the show and a whole lot of others that we haven't yet. And I had a couple stuck to my uh, MacBook for a little while and then I got a new one and I haven't put any on yet, but yeah, they're really cool. James, frankly, I like them so much. I haven't stuck them on much else except for the duplicates you've sent me. So thanks very much. And uh, go check it out. Retro-pilot.com. All right. My one and only question this week is an email from Mackenzie. Kenzie, I'm not going to say your last name because when you get where you're going, you might not want the notoriety. Anyway, hello, Jello. I've been a big fan of the show for a few years now and love all the content BVR Productions puts out. Boat has added so much with his Warbird series. I agree. Crunch and Bio make me love the Tomcat even more. I agree again. And I'm always excited to see you've released a new episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast or the Merge. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks for that. First off, Kenzie, uh, you're going to be waiting a bit longer on our next season of the Merge. Talk to the guys working on that. And it's slow going, partly because we got to figure out how to not lose a ton of money on it. Anyway, Kenzie continues, I was recently accepted to attend Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island for a student naval aviator slot. My ship date is July, and I'm excited to finally start this journey, as you should be. My question is, what advice do you have for a new SNA, student naval aviator? Well, I would be happy to fly anything for the Navy. I've had my heart set on strike fighters for as long as I can remember. Lifelong fan of Top Gun and naval aviation, and it's my dream job. I want to be as competitive as possible, so I figured I'd ask an expert. Oh, aren't you sweet? Also, I know you went through ROTC, but encouraging words or advice for an OCS and Navy life would be greatly appreciated. Well, thanks, Kenzie. Congratulations and good luck. Normally, I respond to these emails privately because the last thing anyone wants is like, I've had a couple people like, Hey, I just made it through and got winged. Should I come on the show and talk about it? And I said, no, you do not want that notoriety at the FRS or in the fleet. And so for you, you know, hopefully nobody figures this out, but anyway, I think it's a safe question and it comes up a lot. So I just want to say, first off, I was an SNA 30 years ago, probably before you were born. And so my experience is, shall we say, well-aged, but people don't change that much. And neither, I think, in the strategic sense, does the experience. So 
My advice to you is this. First, if you have not already, go get some flying experience. Even if you have to do it on your own dime, I don't normally advocate people going into debt, but this might be worth it because you can pay it off. But go get some flying experiences, get the butterflies out, figure out what happens when you pull back and push forward and go too slow. Just see if your stomach can handle it. Don't fly so much that you build bad habits, but definitely get some experience because that will serve you, I think. Next, read and study ahead as much as you possibly can. If you've got friends who are in the process ahead of you, Find out what they went through and what tripped them up at OCS. And don't, by the way, overlook OCS because not everybody makes it through that either. Specifically, assuming you do in flight school itself, because the better you perform, the better you will have the opportunity to get what you want. Then get or stay in shape, certainly before you go to OCS, but also while you're in flight school, because good physical fitness allows you to pull the late nights and early mornings when you have a big check ride, or if you start getting sick, you recover more quickly. And when you go out booming on the weekend, you recover more quickly. Yes, physical fitness is a big part of it. You want the stamina, you want the resilience, et cetera. And then Chip Burke said this on one of our shows a long time ago, strive to be number one. Do your absolute best and then you will have the best chance of getting the results that you want. And so put your mind to it while you are in flight school. Don't let anything else distract you. My now wife was my girlfriend in flight school, and she still teases me that I was postponing and dragging my feet. And I say, honey, I was married to flight school, and that was my number one priority. And because you waited and it worked, now we're happily married, and that's true. So if you've got a significant other, if you've got another job you need to have or an ailing parent, or I guess not much you can do about that. But anyway, try to minimize distractions and try to do your absolute best. You can have fun later. My son just had a procedure on his sinuses today and he was all mad because it's supposed to be good surf for the next few days. And I told him, son, there will always be good surf. And so whatever it is for you, if it's surf, it's snow, if it's whatever, there will be more in the future. Put your head down and do your absolute best. And then the corollary to that is to have a little fun. Now, you can work hard, but you can't work hard all the time. So go out booming, like I said earlier. Go skiing if you get a chance, just when the timing permits. Go surfing, go whatever it is you do and have a little fun. And then the last thing, Kenzie, once you do all that and you have basically put it all out there, there's nothing left and you get the results. If it's what you want, obviously be proud, be happy. If it's not, be proud, be happy. Because as you might've heard, you've listened to the show, People want one thing, they get something else, and then they learn to love it. And I think you will too. If nothing else, you'll be with amazing people doing missions that are incredible. And you'll go to places around the world that you might not otherwise get a chance to go to. So that's it. Do it. Let us know how it goes. And good luck. And I'm jealous. I'd love to go back through, but not at 52. All right. Well, let's see. We're going to kick off UK month with a look, like I said earlier, at the English Electric Lightning. And in case you're unfamiliar, when you hear our guest Blackie mention Buffett, that's not Jimmy. That's not Warren. He's talking about the vibration and aircraft experiences from aerodynamic turmoil as it's separating as the airflow is impacting the aircraft body and specifically the control surfaces. So it's just that shaking and turbulent feeling of an aircraft as you're about ready to stall, frankly. Other than that, everything else I think is self-explanatory. We can follow it up in a little bit. And as you'll learn, as I mentioned earlier, this thing is a trip. So I figure you Austin Power fans will appreciate this transition into the interview. Let's roll it, Bernie. One crazy get-up you got there, fella. Hey, thank you. Are you in the show? Uh, No, actually, I'm English. 
Well, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we are talking about the English Electric Lightning, and who better to help do that than retired Royal Air Force Squadron Leader Ian Black. How you doing, Blackie? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me along. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Now, you're no stranger to microphones. You've been on aircrew interviews several times. You've been on Cold War conversations several times. So there's a lot of background on you out there. But for our purposes today, could you just give us a quick summary of where you're from and what you've done? And I know a little bit. I think you're second generation Lightning pilot, as I understand, former Phantom pilot. So uh, yeah, just give us the highlights, please. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. There's a few things I can add to that. I'm impressed that I've been on microphone. I've never had a top 10 single yet, but uh, I've done a few of these so far, and they've been a big learning curve. For me, I'm the son of a retired RAF Lightning pilot. He was one of the very first Lightning pilots in 1960, and I guess that's where I got my enthusiasm for the aircraft. It's been you know, part of my life for the last sort of 40, 50 years. It's been a love affair, without a shadow of a doubt. And having a father who was a well-respected, you know, he was known as Mr. Lightning. You know, I had a big act to follow. And when I joined the RAF, I was in the army at the time and I was a regular soldier. I hated doing that. and I don't know why I did it and probably just to piss my father off. But I was home on leave and I said to my father one day, look, you know, I've made a huge mistake. I put my hand up. I really do want to be a pilot or join the RAF. And he said, right, tomorrow morning, you're being marched down to the Ecker interview board and I'm going to get you sorted out. And I went along. I don't know whether at the time they were shorter navigators or I was just a bit behind the drag curve on the pilot aptitude then, but they offered me navigator and I took it straight away. So I became a navigator on the Phantom and I flew the FGR2 F4M in Germany during the Cold War and our role was low-level air defense. And I loved it. It was really good fun. And after about a year or so, I thought, this is really good. This is, you know, I'm sitting in the back. I don't have to fly the airplane. I operate the radar. Low-level air combat was what we did day in, day out. We very rarely got above 250 feet. And on the second year, I thought, yes, it's pretty good fun, but actually this is incredibly dangerous. You know, I'm sitting in the back of this airplane with no stick, no throttle, and I'm flying around at 450 knots at 250 feet. The visibility is about four or five kilometers. There's thousands of airplanes out here. And I really don't want to die with that stick in my hand. And uh, maybe that would be my, on my epitaph, on my gravestone. So I was very fortunate, and I flew with a very well-known RAF. He's a general now, or Air Vice Marshal, or Air Marshal, called Sir John Allison. And I was flying in the back of this Phantom with him. And because my father, I suppose, I'm not being arrogant or cocky, but because my father was also an Air Marshal, it didn't really worry me. I wasn't phased by rank. And when the base commander said he wanted to fly in the Phantom, you just watch like little mice, hundreds of these uh, old navigators running into corners and going, no, not me, not me, not me. I, I don't want to fly with them. And I just said, yeah, I'll fly with them. I, I don't mind. So I flew with them quite a lot. And uh, we were flying around in the low flying areas one day. You know, I was probably 20 years old. He must have been around about 42 or so. He'd been a lightning pilot before the Phantom, very experienced. At that stage, I was pretty competent as a navigator. I knew what I was doing. I, I didn't get lost that often. I was just looking in the radar and I looked out to the left-hand side. As I looked to the left-hand side, I just saw an F4 head-on. And it was probably less than a quarter of a mile away, maybe an eighth of a mile away. And he was literally, we were just on this collision course and he was on a 90 to us and he would never have seen us. And I just shouted to the guy in the front who was an air marshal and I just said, push. And he didn't even question me. He didn't do anything. And we were at 250 feet and he pushed and we went down about 100 feet. And as he pushed on the stick... I looked up in the top of the canopy where the mirror was, and I just saw this F4 Phantom. 
and I could count rivets on it and I could see the gun and I could just hear this whoosh noise as it went over the canopy. And we must have been 10 feet below him. Mm. We bottomed out at about 100 feet. We both said nothing to each other for about 30 seconds. I was amazed that he didn't question what I'd said and he just pushed and we both, we survived that day and he saved my life and I probably saved his life. And after that, he said, if there's anything you want me to do, you name it. And I said, well, I want to go and be a pilot. And so he said, well, I will back you 100%. And at that time, I was on a thing called a short service commission. And he said, if you do get your pilot training, it's going to cost the Air Force money. So you're going to have to go on a full service commission. And here's the big catch. He said, if at any stage you fail, you'll have to go back to being a backseat at Rio for life. You know, it's like a punishment. And I went, okay, that's a fairly big incentive not to screw up. I went and did my pilot training and I didn't find it difficult particularly, but it certainly wasn't a walk in the park. I got posted to Lightnings as the very, very last Lightning pilot to go through the course, which was good course because my father flown them. But then I went on to the Tornado F3, the swing wing air defense aircraft, and then I went on to the Mirage 2000. So this story is about the Lightning and that's how I got there. And that was my dream. You know, if somebody said to me when I joined the Air Force, what would you like to do? Where do you want to go? no question i want to go and fly the lightning and when i went through training i went through the advanced training bit and they said hey you know you're pretty good you've got a good airmanship we're going to have you as an instructor and i went no 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 i'm not going to be an instructor i've got to go and fly the lightning and so you know it was a stay of execution for the lightning because the tornado f3 that was coming in service was delayed and i literally got to the lightning ocu by the skin of my teeth so i ended up there in 1986 to 1988 by probably the most circuitous route of any lightning pilot the mere fact that they had effectively, um, for the U.S. guys, a Rio flying a single-seat Lightning was like, you know, I was something like a witch or something that should be burned at the stake because, <laughs> you know, these were the elite fighter pilots of the Royal Air Force, and now they had a backseater flying one of their single-seat fighters. So, But they had a lot of respect for me. At least I had done an operational tour. Yeah. Well, I feel like we've disparaged navigators a little bit, so let's just share a little bit of love because, yeah, you don't hear of too many pilots who wish they were navigators, but you hear plenty of navigators who wish they were pilots, and that's just one of those facts of life, but navigators are important. I think it's worth pointing out, and they do a role that is necessary, and not always. These days, many aircraft are single seat, but I just want to share a little love with all the navigators and whizzos and ECMOs and EOs out there because, you know, they play an important role, too. Yeah, and it's, as somebody said to me, you know, being a navigator is a bit like kissing your sister. You know, it's not legal, but, you know, it's something you do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Ian. <laughs> okay, well, since then, very quickly, uh, you've done some writing and some photography, and you also fly on the side. So uh, is that a pretty good summary of what you've been doing since the military? Yeah, and in fact, the first tour is a backseater on the Phantom. I'm taking the Mickey out of the navigators because... I've ended up flying with navigators on the Tornado F3, and mm. they are invaluable, you know, especially during ECM and at night, reading checklists and stuff like that. And it, it takes that whole worry about where you are, where you're going. So yeah. I don't have any axe to grind against. I, I don't hide the fact that I was a navigator, so I, I'm not proud of it, you know, but I was a navigator. <laughs> but after about a year or so of getting to grips with the Phantom, I always had a passion for photography, and I got asked to take some photographs, and it just sort of blossomed from there. So I wanted to record the period when I was flying from 1981 till I left in 1997, sort of 2000 maybe. I wanted to sort of capture that moment in time because I knew that when it went, it would go and it would never come back again. 
you know, you couldn't just walk around a, an airbase in RAF Germany with your camera snapping away because you'd be arrested <laughs> yeah. as a spy. And I had little tiny, like, Rolex spy cameras in my pocket that I would, you know, if I landed a German base, I might sort of take them out and take photographs. But that was where my passion for photography came from, was sitting in the back of an F4. Well, and again, you had episode 157 on Cold War Conversations, where you talked a lot about your German deployments and uh, a lot of your other activities. So we'll refer to that so that we can get on to today's topic, which is the English Electric Lightning. Why don't we start at the beginning? As I understand it, the plans for this aircraft were started in the late 40s, when people were still just barely breaking the sound barrier and getting into jet power. But the uh, Brits wanted an English interceptor, and they wanted it Mach 2 capable. So what can you tell us about the beginning or the origins of the Lightning? Well, you're absolutely right, Jello. It's a purely British airplane. There's nothing foreign in it at all. It is quintessentially English, as we say. And it was made by the English Electric Company, who, strangely enough, also made electric trains and they made fridges. And they were given the <laughs> contract to build the Lightning. You know, it's evolutions from the very late 1940s. At the time, the paradoxical thing is that they were actually building the English Electric Canberra, which was a, was a superb airplane. It had a straight wing, it had twin engines, and it was a very, very capable bomber aircraft. And then they were awarded the contract. And this is a bit that's it's not muddy, but it's quite hard to get to grips with, is that they were actually given a contract to build a prototype supersonic aircraft. So they weren't given a contract to build a fighter their initial contract, I think it was ER-103, was to build a supersonic research aircraft capable of doing Mach 1.6. And that's what they set off and did. You know, that sort of period, 1947-48, there was a lot of World War II German engineers and experts around in the UK and in the USA, and they went to them for advice and to try to fathom out where they got to in uh, the latter parts of World War II in terms of design philosophy. The one thing that came through was a swept wing for high speed. And interestingly, the very first jet German aircraft, which named me as a Blommen Voss, I think, it had a shoulder-mounted, fairly straight wing, but it had a conical intake for the air intake for the air. My theory is that they looked at that, had the shoulder-mounted, very high swept wing, and then came the big problem was where they were going to mount this all-moving tailplane. The chief test pilot, who was Roland Beaumont, who was a Battle of Britain pilot, he went across to America. He flew the F-86 on its very first flight. He took it supersonic. Who would do that? And, you know, here you go. Here's an airplane. It's you know one of the USA's most treasured possessions. You know, Don't break it. But uh, if you want to go supersonic, you know, go ahead. And he did. Mm-hmm. And he knew then that the way to put the stabilator was to put it low mounted at the back. But at that time, the air ministry in the UK said, no, 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 you've got to have like a Gloucester Javelin, which has got a high T tail. You've got to have the tail stabilizer mounted on the top of the tail. And they said, no, no, no. And they built a completely random airplane called the short SB5, which you could take off the back of the tail and put a low slab one or a high T tail. Hmm. And in the end, they worked out that the low slab was the way to go forward, which they always knew. The sort of the really groundbreaking technology was in the fact that they built this aircraft as a prototype, a supersonic research aircraft with a 68-degree swept wing with the conical intake, which initially had no radar in it, and the low-mounted tailplane stabilator. And to reduce the cross-sectional frontal area, 
they decided to mount the engines one above each other. So the number one engine sits on the bottom and number two sits aft and on the top. And then the air intake, which I think is a really clever thing that they did with, you know, slide rules and bits of paper was the air intake doesn't have like an F4 Phantom, which has ramps that move in and out to control the air. The air intake is a cone and it then has a bifurcated duct. So the air is split like an S shape. So air is equally distributed to the top engine and the bottom engine. And that's at all speeds and nothing moves inside there. So there's no ramps as you go faster or slower that open. There's no way of controlling that air. That powers the aircraft from flight at, say, 120 knots, 140 knots, up to Mach 2.1, 2.2. So that was pure genius. I just wrote a book on the Lightning, and I spent hours trying to get to the bottom of when they designed the aircraft. It just had this conical, like an F-86 or F-100 intake with no radar in it, and it was going to be a gun-armed, probably missile fighter. And eventually I found a test pilot who was in his late 90s, he said to me that when he applied to become a test pilot, he was flying from Boscombe down to, I don't know, somewhere in the UK. And the chief test pilot then said, OK, if you want to be a test pilot, I'm going to ask you a few questions. And he said, if you want an air intake and you want to have it going supersonic, what's the best thing to put in that air intake to control the flow of air into both engines through the whole speed range of the aircraft? And he came back sharp as a pin. He said, you want to put a conical body in there. And the guy said to him, he said, spot on. That's exactly what it is. And so whether it was by design or fluke, the Lightning then had this conical radome body, which was called a bullet. And you could then have an interchangeable bullet. So the bullet would come in and come out. So the radar was pressurized and totally encapsulated in this aluminium bullet at the front and a fiberglass radome at the back was uh, aluminium. And the front was the fiberglass radome. And that had a pulse radar in that. And the air then flowed around that intake and then into both number one and number two engine. I think the fish bed, the MiG-21, the radar moved in and out slightly. I could be wrong on that, and I'm sure one of your... No, that's correct. But the lightning didn't. It was fixed. And the theory was that if you went off and did a mission, the radar was unserviceable. You came back, you parked on the line, and they just wheeled out this little guy on a ladder, and he just undid a few bolts and, and swapped the radar and put the radar in. But it, in practice, it didn't really work like that. So that was how the shape of the fuselage came around. Now, the wing, because it was 68 degrees swept and because it had to necessarily be very thin and you had both engines in the fuselage, that meant you couldn't, like an F-104, you couldn't put the main undercarriage into the fuselage because there was no room, so they couldn't fold up there. So the only way that they could do that was to put the main wheels into the wing. Now, if you put the main wheels into the wing and it's very thin, the only way you can do that is to have the main wheels then fold back on themselves into a 67-degree wing. I spoke to an engineer and he said, well, that's really simple. But for a a fighter pilot, it looked really complicated to me. So when the wheel folds back, it folds back and aft in line with the wing through 68 degrees and then folds up into the wing. And that's how it keeps the wing very thin. So there were lots of design features about the Lightning that were unique. But in the end, you know, they designed this aircraft to do Mach 1.6 and straight away they knew it would do 1.6 plus. The only thing I would criticize it for, and again, this is with hindsight and having flown the Phantom, now I'm an old, grizzly, gray-haired fighter pilot, I can (laughs) see these things, is that when you look at the design of the F-4 Phantom, and I hark back to the Phantom a bit because that's what my latest book's on, and now I'm a bit more knowledgeable about it, is that you've got pilot in the front, the wonderful Rio navigator in the back who does such a fantastic job that we must not mention. But that front fuselage 
allows you then to put a large dish radome on the front encapsulated by the Phantom's black radar dish radome. But then it allows you to then have an intake either side. Now, if you take that to the lightning and you look how the lightning is done, probably the first 15 to 18 feet of the front fuselage of a lightning is taken up with the radar. And then you've got this huge big air intake and if you think about it, that's actually a pretty big waste of fuselage. You've flown the F-18 and you think there's none of that because the air intakes are either side of you. Same as the F-16, the air intakes underneath you. And you can fill up the front of the aircraft with radar, avionics, jammers, whatever you want to do. And I guess that's just, you know, with years of hindsight, they probably didn't think about that. But that's my only criticism, I would say, about the aerodynamic design of the Lightning. Some of your um, listeners have, have come up with some pretty good questions later on, and I can cover those of what I think the drawbacks and the disadvantages are. But that's my only criticism, I guess, of how the Lightning was designed. It has a very strange method of assembly in that the front fuselage comes off, and then the wings are sort of slipped into the middle of the main fuselage with one engine above and one engine underneath. So like an F4, you can't just take the wings off and then ship the fuselage you literally have to disassemble it and it takes weeks. So very British. <laughs> you beat me to it. I was just about to say that very <laughs> expression, but uh, better to come from you than from me. So a lot to unpack there, Ian, and we'll get to a lot of it. But just while I'm thinking about the wings and the way the wheels fold up in there, was there any room left over then in the wings for fuel or are they dry wings? Yeah. And, you know, I, there is a lot to take in and I probably sound as like I'm the most knowledgeable fighter pilot. And I'm only doing this, as I said to you, I, I wrote a book on the Lightning last year and it actually gives me hairs on the back of my neck sort of stand up a bit to think that when I flew these aircraft, maybe you were the same with the F-18, I didn't really know how they were built or constructed or why they were built like that or right. why designers came up with that. And you know, when you come to the fuel of the Lightning, the Lightning leaked fuel because it had no integral fuel tanks or bags. So they built each wing. And again, when you look at that main undercarriage folding back into the wing, mm -hmm. that takes up a fair section of the wing. So they had to put fuel in the flaps in the wing and they had to put fuel in the leading edge of the wing and then in parts of the wing. So it was like a leaking wing the whole time of this sort of nightmare that was a metal fuel tank sort of sealed with Bostic and this two-part epoxy resin stuff, which, you know, it was probably designed for four or five years. And then 45 years later, when it was still in service, it was all cracked and bits would fall out. And <laughs> it was always perennially short of fuel. And they actually thought at one time of putting fuel in the what was called the D-door the main undercarriage door, they actually thought about putting you know, another 20 gallons of fuel in there. Wow. Well, it's also easy to look back with our modern technology and way of life and say, what were they thinking? But at the time, right, there was limitations on technology and development and yeah. the way they could not only design aircraft, but build them. So again, a lot to unpack and all that. And you're clearly the expert having written the book on it. And hopefully you can tell us about the book later and we can link to it on our website. So designed as an interceptor and as it was operational, as I understand it, from the 60s through the 80s, it did a lot of different roles. But what would you say, Ian, was its bread and butter role? Was it a no kidding interceptor like Cold War bombers? Or was it a fighter? Did it do much dogfighting, for example? But what was the bread and butter role for the Lightning? I would say it was pretty much like the F-106. It was really an air interceptor. You know, it would hold alert. The role was the protection of UK airspace. Okay. You know, it would sit on alert and go off in five minutes and then intercept aircraft over the North Sea. Or it was based in Germany and it would do the same role there. Or it's based in Cyprus and do the same role there. Or it's based in Singapore 
and the same role. And that's what it was conceived for. It was conceived in an era where they envisage mass raids of bear bombers coming around the northern Cape to the UK. They would sit on alert literally at the end of the runway. They'd get scrambled off and they would be vectored onto the target and they would literally put the autopilot in and the ground controller would use data link and the, he would guide them to the aircraft. The lightning pilot would turn his radar on, find the target, lock onto it and squeeze off a missile. And that's what it was designed to do and then land hmm. because it only had two missiles. I mean, that was another of its shortcomings. It was only ever designed to carry two missiles. So point defense, probably not something you're going to do an offensive attack in. No. But I'm actually really surprised, Ian, to hear what you just said about the ground controllers. That sounds like a very Soviet method or maybe Eastern method long ago versus the Western method where pilots have some autonomy. But we don't have to necessarily drop anchor on that if you don't want to. I don't know a huge amount about it. It was Datalink in the 1960s. English Electric, as you rightly pointed out, was the company then who were designing and building the Lightning they went a long way down the road, and I think it was privately funded, to develop this data link where I guess it was a bit like, I'm trying to think of the analogy of what came through in the digitalization in the 60s of you know, record decks and stuff, is that that was probably the flavor of the month. You know, They thought they were being really <laughs> hip and cool, and yeah. you know, the lightning pilot would get everyone, put the autopilot in, data link would lock on, the GCI guy would find the target, and he would vector the lightning onto it. And I think it was, rather than that, that sort of Soviet you know, I totally get what you say about that Soviet doctrine. Mm -hmm. I think it was more to do with the fact that they were trying to reduce the workload of the pilot, which they knew was pretty high, rather than have him being controlled by GCI. And, and I think you have to remember as well is that in the UK, we worked a lot with GCI. You know, we would never, in the early 60s, I guess, every mission was working with some GCI station. It was a pretty good network of GCI out there. Yeah, that makes sense. And you said the English Electric. Earlier, I stumbled with who came around after them, and it looks like it was the British Aircraft Corporation. But we'll just credit English Electric for yeah. today's purposes. All right. So, Ian, let's talk about the different variants. And uh, there are many, and we don't need to go through each iteration, but let's talk about your experiences. Which aircraft did you fly, and what was unique about the trainer version of the English Electric as far as the configuration for the two pilots? It's pretty simple on the variants because having had my father fly the very first ones, so the Mark 1s, they're all hand-built, built by craftsmen in, in uh, the English Electric Factory at Wharton. They're all individual. They all had a unique character. The Mark 1 Lightning, it had Fire Streak and four guns. Then they went to the Mark 2, which had Fire Streak and four guns. Then the big critical bit was the Mark 3 when the Fire Streak was replaced by the Red Top missile. And the Red Top missile was designed by de Havilland, and it was way beyond the Sparrow that you Americans had, and it was the first head-on IR missile. In actual fact, it probably wasn't as good as the Sparrow. So you could fire it unlocked with the radar locked, but it didn't guide on CW illumination. It guided on the friction of the heat of the leading edge of the target, wow. which I always found was a little bit odd because... You know, a bear bomber does go reasonably fast, but I couldn't imagine it was going to be producing a lot of heat friction. Anyway, so that came in, and the big bombshell then with the Mark III Lightning, the single seat Lightning, was that they got rid of the guns because all the gubbins that went into the aircraft, and gubbins is an English expression for when you don't know what it was. So it's all, <laughs> okay. <laughs> all the avionics that were powering the new flight instrumentation in the aircraft. You know, it wasn't head-up display, but it was certainly pretty good stuff. That meant you couldn't have guns. And that was the first time ever in 1964 that the RAF had a, had a fighter 
that was purely missile only. There were no guns in it. <laughs> that sent you know shockwaves through fighter command as it was then. And pretty soon after they got those aircraft, they intercepted a balloon that was going awry across London. An aircraft from a base near London at Watersham had to intercept this balloon. And they said, well, what are we going to do? You know, Although there were two people in it, they're never going to shoot it down. But they had no way of actually taking this balloon out if it was going to crash into the Houses of Parliament or something. So that's when the air ministry suddenly realized, yeah, you still need to have a gun. And then the RAF retrofitted the gun. And in that quintessential unique Britishness, we put the gun in the front of the fuselage fuel tank. So <laughs> that again was, you know, how British can you get for putting a gun yeah. in a fuel tank? Which then got moving forward ahead. That then reduced the amount of fuel that an aeroplane that didn't have enough fuel anyway even further. So that was, you know, the sort of three marks of single-seaters. And then the two-seaters were side-by-side. Mm-hmm. But again, making us all sound very eccentric in England, they built a two-seater with this sort of um, area rule philosophy where the front fuselage was only one and a half feet wider than the two-seater. So you literally were sitting shoulder-to-shoulder with the guy next to you. Then, of course, you had this huge problem with the instrumentation of parallax, So if you sat in the left seat, you know, when you're looking at the instruments, you had to look from left to right. If you were doing an instrument rating check, you know, it was very hard to fly accurately on instruments from the left seat to the right seat and the right seat to the left seat. You'll probably laugh now, but then they had this crazy idea where to make slightly more space in the cockpit, they would have the instructor in the right, but he would have the throttle in the right-hand side and the stick in the left-hand side. So you now ended up with aircraft where the pupil flew with his hands on the throttle on the left and his hand on the stick on the right, but the instructor flew left-handed and he had his throttles on the right-hand side. And that did, you know, occasionally have guys push when they meant to pull and pull when they meant to push. So that was the basic six marks. And I haven't covered export lightnings because I never flew them. They were a different breed to what the RAF used. But there was proliferation, as I understand it, to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Although in doing some research for this interview. I watched some videos of South African aircraft. Now, maybe they weren't part of the Air Force, but I guess they found their way down there. But yeah, who all flew this and where are they today, if anywhere? Probably just on museum sticks? Yeah, the Saudi Arabians bought the Lightning early on in about 64, 65 with a fly-off against the North American F-5. They won that contest and it was the biggest export order that the UK had ever had. And I know I'm going to get this wrong, but it's roughly right. It was called the uh, Al Yamama project, but there was something at Magic Carpet, that's what it was called. How discreet. Okay. The Saudis bought around about 60 or 70, perhaps, and the Kuwaitis bought 12. The Saudi export lightning worked incredibly well, and that developed a huge ongoing relationship between the Saudi Air Force and the UK, which went on to Typhoon and Tornado. And they operated really well. And, and they were trained in the RAF initially, and then they did their own training. And they were very capable lightning operators. And they flew it in the ground attack role as well as the air defense. The Q80 ones, I'm not being disparaging, but the airplane was way too complicated for a, a fledgling air force like Q8. Okay. They operated them for, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 hours. And then they were all canned. Oh, wow. They operated the Mirage F1 after that, uh, a simple aircraft. The English Electric Company developed the lightning into a multi-role combat aircraft, a bit like the F-4. It could have sold you know, around the world, but it was you know, stymied by a myriad of political interventions. Yeah. And the South African ones were private ones. Right. I was about to follow up on that. So a gentleman down there obtained a small fleet of them and brought them down and made them fly. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, we've danced around with this next subject already, Ian, but let's come back to the looks because this is a very distinctive aircraft. And if you ask me, the front looks a little bit like a MiG-21 or maybe an Su-22, and then the the wings kind of look like a MiG-19, and the tail looks like nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> we've already talked a little bit about it, but I don't know. I mean... What else is there to say about the wings or the nose or the stacked engines? I don't know of any other aircraft with stacked engines. There aren't. There was a French uh, prototype airplane that had stacked engines, but there were no other aircraft built with GCI. I used to call it the vertical twin jet, and mm-hmm. that was its nickname. I sort of think that English people or European people love the look of the Lightning. Certainly, Lightning pilots love the look of the Lightning. It, it all comes down to their Britishness. Americans sort of look at it and go, whoa, you know, it's... What the hell is that? But it's um, it's British, and it epitomizes everything to do with the 1950s aviation world to me. If you marry up all those crazy ideas, and you know, in America, you had some pretty crazy ideas with the Crusader three and the F-107 and all those sort of funky ideas. We had the same in the UK. You know, we had the Ferry Delta two, which was this Delta aircraft that looked like a shark or a, um, a swordfish. And they flew within about two months of each other. Hmm. And they were so radically different. You know, the Lightning had the 68-degree swept wing. The Ferry Delta had a Delta wing with no tailplane in 1954. And yet they both did Mach 2. We're sort of going a bit off-piste here, but it's one of my sort of pet subjects is that British aircraft industry was all amalgamated in 1964 to become the British Aircraft Corporation. And I think that's where it lost its focus because before when we had Ferry and Bristol and English Electric, all those lovely names and Hawker Sibley and Sopwith and Supermarine. Yeah, we had at one point, I gather we had more aircraft manufacturers than the USA had, but they obviously were smaller. But what it did do was, you know, in the days pre-internet and pre-telephones is that all these little designers got together and they worked out these crazy designs on their own. So the English Electric Company they produced the Lightning, and they probably had no idea what Ferry were doing with the Delta. They, you know, they probably talked a little bit, but it wasn't quite the same now that you and I could find out what you know the F-15, latest F-15 is going to look like. We'll know straight away, and and right. that's why I think it allowed that creativity to shine through, you know, with individuals and produce all these sort of fantastical aircraft. And I think that's why British people get it. You know, they get. The Lightning was the winner of all the competitions of Ferry Deltas and Bristol Type 188s. I'm trying to, you know, thin wing javelins and stuff with high T tails. And it was a very, you know, crazy era, I think. Well, there's certainly no mistaking the looks of the Lightning with any other aircraft, even though it shares some commonalities, like I said, with different aircraft. But it is very unique. And when you see it in flight, which I've not, but just watching some YouTube videos, There's really no questioning what it is. Now, moving from that then to the performance, right? So the highly swept wings has to help its top speed, I have to think, but it also probably is a detriment on landing. And the stacked engines, I've heard pretty amazing climb performance, but I wonder if sometimes like in an F-14, if you lost an engine, asymmetry was a big deal. And I wonder if you could comment on if you lose an engine in the Lightning, whether there was any sort of pitch asymmetry. But Let's talk performance a little bit. So any thoughts on those lead-ins? Well, covering the engine before the aerodynamic side of it, I never lost an engine in the Lightning, uh, I don't think. No, I never lost an engine in Lightning. Okay. The big plus on it was that the engines being stacked on top of each other, if you lost one, there was no asymmetry, so you didn't have any yaw. Right. The critical part really would have been, it never happened to me, and we did talk about it, is 
if you were flying the single seat in reheat on takeoff, if you lost the bottom engine, the number one engine, then there was the possibility that you now had just the one engine on the top in full reheat, that you had a downward vector. And so trying to get airborne with just the one engine working on the top and the bottom one failed could have been a bit of a problem. But otherwise, there was no asymmetry. And I don't think we even practiced single engine from memory. We didn't do anything single engine. You know, you do probably an F-18, you go and do single engine asymmetric overshoots or whatever, but we didn't in the Lightning. It was just something we didn't bother to do. On the aerodynamic side of it, because there were no leading edge slats and it had effectively like the F4, it had a hard wing, you had to be doing 300 knots before you went into a turn, really. Otherwise, it would buff it like mad. <laughs> I flew the Lightning until 1988 in the RAF, and then I flew it privately down in South Africa. And I think my first flight there was about 97, 98, maybe 2000. And I'd flown the Mirage and I'd flown the Tornado F3 as a reserve pilot, but I hadn't flown the Lightning for maybe 12, 13 years. I was pretty shocked that as soon as I took off and I got to about 200 knots and I sort of yanked it into a hard turn, the airplane just juddered and buffeted like crazy. And the guy said, oh, don't forget, you know, you need 300 knots. And you do. You would fly around in the heavy buffet all the time at 250 knots. And that was quite normal. I recall doing spin training because we didn't spin the lightning. I don't know why we didn't spin the lightning. Some guys did who were very experienced, but we didn't intentionally go off and do spinning in the lightning. Mm -hmm. So we had to go and do it in a jet province, a straight wing airplane. And it had the same spin recovery technique of centralizing the stick and then uh, applying full opposite rudder as you do in most airplanes. And I went off and did my annual spin recovery training in a jet province and having got my 250 hours in the lightning, I felt pretty cocky and sure of myself. So I thought I'd show this guy, you can land it if you want. So I came whizzing back at, you know, what, 300 knots or something in the circuit. And I did my 6G break to try and impress him. And as I went around finals at about 120 knots, I just kept pulling and pulling and pulling like I would in the lightning and, you know, going into the heavy buffet. He went white in the face and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just sort of pulling the light buffet. And he went, oh my God, no, don't do that. We'll stall, we'll crash. And I'd forgotten, of course, that, and normal airplanes, if you get into the buffet, you have to unload and recover. In the Lightning, we flew around in heavy buffet, really heavy buffet all the time and just put more power on and, and powered our way out of it. That was a bit of an eye-opener. And also, again, on reflection, as we said earlier, you know, when you look back on stuff and sort of think, you know, how did that happen and why was that happening? I found it incredible that we went to the tornado after the Lightning, which had variable geometry wings and had swing wings like the F-14. One of the emergencies that we would do would be a swept ring approach where we simulated the wings being stuck in 67 degrees, which is pretty identical to the lightning. Mm -hmm. And that was an emergency. And, you know, we didn't fly around in 67 wing doing approaches. And I suddenly thought years later, well, that's what we were flying around with all the time in the lightning. And it's, <laughs> we flew around effectively in swept ring approaches in the tornado as our bread and butter. Mm. The approach speeds were pretty high. I think 165 rings a bell from memory. It was a strange approach. It wasn't particularly speed stable. So you had to keep sort of a, one eye on the speed and then just keep putting jabs of power on. You couldn't set a thrust and probably like in an F-18, you could just like peg 140 knots and just leave it there and little tweaks. You were constantly just sort of doing things with the lightning. <laughs> you then just pretty much like a carrier landing. You had to get on the numbers and you had to put it down the numbers. If you didn't put it on the numbers, you would go off the end. There's no question about it. If you landed long and the chute failed, you would go off the end. It was challenging to fly. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. It's probably a good thing no one wanted to adapt this to a carrier environment. I think that would be a handful by the sounds of it. But, you know, you're talking about flying in Buffett. I guess it's uh, maybe just a way the aircraft is communicating back with you, right? You kind of have an idea of where you are depending on the amount of buffet. Some aircraft are obviously a bit more forgiving for that than others, so that makes sense. And then you asked about the FA-18 and doing maybe single engine. The only thing I ever remember doing, now in post-maintenance check flights, there was a time we used to shut one engine down and check the other, et cetera. But the only thing we used to do in any kind of training was when we would do field carrier landing practices at the field, before we go to the ship, every once in a great while, you might pull one engine to idle, raise your flaps from full to half, and then just tell the LSO, hey, I'm doing a simulated single engine where you're just running the other engine. Yeah. But it was never a big drama at all. And uh, yeah, the engines were pretty reliable. That says a lot, though, that you were never single engine in all the time that you flew it, even with uh, arguably older technology. Now, we were talking about performance, though, and so I just want to put you on the spot here, Ian. So I can read that it's gone Mach 2 and 60,000 feet, but what have you seen in the uh, Lightning? Well, I could be really cocky and say, yeah, Mach 2.2 and 70,000 feet, but <laughs> I'd be <laughs> lying through my teeth. Oh, okay. I think the record that people accept is 78,000 feet wow. and about Mach 2.1. Personally, I arrived on the Lightning right at the end, and they're all bent out of shape. Okay. The limitation at low level was actually quite slow it was 625 with a probe on and the probe is a huge great big metal pole on the left side mm -hmm. and 650 knots without a probe on and then there were various limitations with one missile or two missiles so you know if you were at low level and you went to full reheat it would go off like a scalded cat and then you'd look at the ball and you could watch the ball just wandering from completely out of shape this is the balance ball you're talking about for y'all yeah mm -hmm. on the adi and you'd need a fair boot full of rudder on there because the aircraft were 25 years old, they were bent. It didn't give me a huge amount of confidence that the airplanes were that true. And <laughs> likewise, I don't know, I probably did Mach 1.7, 1.8. Okay. And then I probably went up to 58, maybe 62,000. I don't know, maybe that's exaggerating. I never went that high because we just flew in, you know, ordinary flying clothing. We didn't wear pressure helmets. Right. The seal on the cockpit was a, a rubber seal. So you knew in 1988 that they were probably 25 years old. Quite brittle. Yeah. So <laughs> it wasn't big and it wasn't clever to go and hire us as fast as you, okay. you probably wanted to go. Could the Lightning pull very many Gs? And was that something you regularly did or no? It could pull 13G. Wow. If you had to. And somebody did pull 13G once. 
but the wings cracked and it had a hole the size of, you know, you could put your fist through it afterwards. Sure, but he came home, right? Yeah, it was pretty well built, but generally we pulled the six. Okay. The next camp was a 7G camp. I don't know if it was the same in the US Navy or on the F-18, but if you were very, very clever, you could pull to 6.9 and not click a 7 over. So, you know, you, <laughs> you gave yourself another 0.9 of a G there. Yeah. But if you went to 7, that was a major no-no because then they had to take both the engines out and check for leaks and fuel pipes oh cracked and stuff. So you were not a popular boy. No, I would think not. Did you do much uh, what they might call hassling in the Lightning? Uh, dogfighting, BFM, 1v1, ACM, there's a thousand terms for it. But was it much of a dogfighter? And would you get close to that 7G limit? The thing about it was, is it was very well balanced on the controls and it was very well harmonized. <laughs> so and I only flew the F-18 once. I thought that was pretty well harmonized in terms of Somebody said to me that the F-18 was like a swept-up F-4. You know, it was a bit more like a fly-by-wire F-4, and it did give you quite a bit of feedback, and you could feel a bit of buffet. The F-16 that I'd flown, like yourself, I found that was very sterile. You didn't really get much pilot feedback on that F-18 you did. The Lightning was unquestionably the best feedback I ever had as a pilot. You didn't have to look in the cockpit. You knew within 15 knots if you're at 280 or 350 or whatever, how fast you're going just by the stick loading. Yeah. As you got fasting, the stick got a little, it didn't get tight, but you could tell by the twitchiness of the stick how fast you were going on it. And if you were above three, again, I'm saying this from the top of my head, let's call it 320 knots, you could over-G the airplane easily. Hmm. So when you got to 450 knots, you had to be super careful because you could really pull 7G just you know, in the drop of a hat. It was that sensitive. I think airplanes today, without hopefully going on too big a tangent here, Ian, are a lot like cars and motorcycles where you don't have to be as good a driver or rider as you did 30, 40, 50 years ago because the technology makes up for it, right? So you can hop in yeah. a modern fighter, especially in the F-18, there's a tone that sounds at the peak AOA and you don't even have to look inside. You can just pull, pull, pull. And when you get to that tone, just ease off a little bit and then it goes away and you pull back a little bit more and it comes on again and you know right where you are, 35 alpha. You know, like you said, the F-16 stops you at 25 well before you get to anything because it doesn't want you to depart. So I think there's a distinction between the fighter pilots of old where some had natural ability that others lacked, and then today where it just kind of smooths it all out across all of them because the aircraft are so forgiving. So yeah. I don't know if you find that to be true for me, the Lightning and everything else you flew. It was because you hit the nail on the head there about... I think they call it mechanical feedback or feedback to the pilot and you know, seat of the pants, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. The Lightning didn't have an AOA gauge. I don't know whether it was intentional that it would never be retrofitted with an AOA gauge because the Buccaneer had one and it had that oral tone. And I flew the Buccaneer. But when I flew it and I flew it around finals and I could just get this beep, 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 and that oral tone of knowing when you were on the right AOA, I thought that is just genius because <laughs> it's like having a, an extra sensory perception in your head of, I don't have to look at the airspeed, look out the window and that's it. But the Lightning had no AOA gauge. The party trick of the Lightning was to do what was called a rote. That involved you going down the runway in full reheat, lifting the nose wheel off at about 150 knots, getting airborne at 160, 65. And as soon as you felt the main wheels come off, you put the gear up, you trim forward on the stick and you push the stick slightly forward and you just went as fast and as low as you can on a roller skate takeoff and then when you got to 200, 250 knots, you literally pulled the stick back as hard as you could. And the aircraft would do this sort of cobra snake bite thing and just rotate into the vertical. Now, 
people reckoned that it would hit 45, 50 AOA, and it would literally be out of control. There was no lift on the wings at all. I don't know, maybe three or four guys crashed, two or three killed themselves doing it. And in the end, we were told, just get to 200 knots and do a 200 knot climb. Don't pull the stick back as hard as you could. But when you're talking about that seat of the pants, fighter pilot, ingenuity, pure skill, there were pilots who did a rote and got to 250 knots. And if you got too fast, it would over-rotate. So it would go through the vertical, almost onto its back, you know, <laughs> below 1,000 feet. But there were guys who became so confident they did a rote. It went into the vertical. They realized they were going through the vertical below 1,000 feet with no lift over the wings. So this is a friend of mine who did it in front of his then-girlfriend, he smashed the stick as hard as it would go onto the center combing to correct that over-pitch. Once he smashed it onto the front combing, it, it then started to rotate forward, but then it had no lift at all. And then it started doing this fishtail, so it was just going up on its thrust, and it was fishtailing left and right. And he knew that it was about to depart, and he was going to crash in front of his girlfriend. So he actually rudded it out. So while it was in the vertical, probably doing about 150 knots. He was ruddering out and he got to about 1,500 feet and then just put a boot full of right rudder and it ruddered its way around. And he then started to get some lift and flew away. But, you know, <laughs> that was this guy. I won't say his name on air, but he was a very skillful pilot and he had great hands, as they say in England, which yeah. doesn't mean his, his nails are well manicured. He <laughs> had a really good pair of hands. You know, he, <laughs> he didn't just have, you know, that sort of skill. He literally flew that thing out of control. <laughs> There's some expression, I can't think of it right this moment, but right, it talks about, okay, great hands are good, but you'd like to have a great brain and not get yourself to where you need the great hands. Yeah. And I completely just murdered that. But there's some statement about superb pilots are the ones that have the skill to not, you know, whatever. I'm sure in the US Navy they had, but I think it comes from the US Navy. I think it's from the Phantom Era, you know, they had that big poster on the wall, you know, there are old pilots and bold pilots. That's right. There are no old bold pilots. And yeah. when you're 25, you look at that and go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I'm bulletproof. Absolutely. Yeah. Ian, let's talk about the weapons, although we've already sort of touched on them. But I think if I read correctly, 30 millimeter cannons. And uh, you talked about some missiles that I'm not particularly familiar with, the Fire Streak and the Red Top. So let's just, if you would, just a quick overview of the weapons. So... The Lightning was, was one of the things I didn't touch on was it had a an interchangeable weapons pack. Mm. So that fitted underneath the pilot, and it was a pack that could take the Fire Streak or Red Top, or you could replace it with projectile rockets. They dropped down and flew off. The Fire Streak, I would say, was an AIM-9B, you know, 20 degrees off the tail, okay. no into sun, about a mile and a half low level, maybe two miles, against a non-evading subsonic bomber. That's what it was but a big, heavy missile. I think it was about 15 feet long. Whoa. Way bigger and way heavier than a Sidewinder. And the Red Top was a development of Fire Street, but it had that sort of semi-head-on capability that was super, super secret in 1965. The big drawback was is that both of them, they had a seeker head that had to be cooled by cooling air or liquid ammonia, I think it was. Once you'd armed the missile and cooled the head down, you opened that ammonia and that was it. You couldn't turn it off and on. Again, something that I thought about 20 years later, I thought, you know, that was crazy. So if you went off in QRA and you intercepted a bear, did you arm the missile? Did you not arm the missile? So you couldn't ever do like you did in your F-18. You couldn't go and sit on the cap for four hours and sit, you know, bumbling around, you know, turning a sidewinder coolant on and off, putting it on when you wanted to. It was a one-shot only affair. Plus, because the missiles 
were mounted on the side of the front fuselage. They had that obscuration problem with the seeker head. And it was never, ever upgraded to have helmet-mounted sights or um, off-bore sight capability. Right. The nickname for the two missiles, I can say this under the Official Secrets Act now after 50 years, is that the red top was called the red flop and the fire streak was called the firewood. <laughs> Their PK rates were pretty small. You probably would have just scared the guy. I mean, they were quite good. The fire streak was pretty good at low level. From memory from the sidewind, you know, there was um, the Sparrow, the gravity drop and the um, AMRAMs and things. When it came off the rail, it was Mach 3 by the time it got your nose, and it was going in pure pursuit. Wow. Mm -hmm. So it didn't have that gravity drop problem. We used to fire missiles into a place called Cardigan Bay in Valley off the Welsh coast. They would come off the rails and explode in your face. You know, literally, oh, they'd come off the rails and just blow up in front of you. And guys came back with the front windscreen, you know, completely shattered and bits of metal on them. And they were definitely 1960s technology. And then they had the gun, which is either mounted in the fuel tank, very mm -hmm. sensible, or in the early lightnings, they had two guns, which were shoulder mounted. I never flew them, but talking to the guys who flew them, the whole cockpit filled with cordite. Oof. And then all the instruments failed because the whole thing shook and juddered <laughs> when you were firing these guns literally over your shoulders. One of the ideas that British Aerospace came up with, and I know one of your listeners has come up with a really good question, just to preempt that, the overwing fuel tanks, they came up with a solution. And I don't know whether it's a common known thing in America of the 68 millimeter SNED rocket which is supersonic unguided rockets. I think the, the U.S. Navy called them Zuni rockets or something. Those were a five-inch rocket? CRV-7s? Not familiar with that terminology, but yeah, the five-inch rocket we would call the Zuni, and the 2.75-inch rockets I think we called the Mighty Mouse. And I think those were the two primary-sized rockets for fixed-wing aircraft. Yeah, I think CRV-7 is Canadian, actually. I think the F-18s in Canada used them. Okay. The SNEB rocket is French, a 67-millimeter SNEB rocket. They were going to put them on the front of the overwing fuel tank. <laughs> so they had fuel in the back. They had a SNEB can on the front of it. And then these were literally four feet behind your shoulder. So you're going to fire these 67-millimeter rockets, unguided supersonic rockets, and they would just be going both sides, whizzing it past your shoulders. That's... <laughs> Talk about Operation Certain Death. I mean, it was uh, absolutely crazy. So yeah. eventually we ended up with the gun in the fuel tank. And we had two 30 millimeters with, a, I think it was 125 rounds each, so not very many. And then we had a gun sight that was the same as the Hawker Hunter or the Supermarine Spitfire. It just literally, you know, fixed gun sight. And it was pretty yeah. hopeless, really. You had to just get in pretty close. So in going back to what you were saying about, was it a good dogfighter? Did we do dogfighting? Maybe I've jumped ahead of the questions. The weapon system was so complicated for one single-seat pilot. You know, there was no HOTAS. And I think the G limit for firing the fire strip was something like 2.5G. Mm -hmm. Again, I thought about that last year, writing this book. I thought, 2.5G limit to fire the echo. So you actually, what were you supposed to do in a 6G rolling scissors? Are you supposed to just back off to 2.5G and <laughs> fire it? Or you really were gun-armed only. Then you've got to hope you just get as close as you can and and hose off a few rounds, I guess. Yeah, do what it takes. So we learned during our Century Series episodes about a year ago with our guest, Bruce Gordon, that we had some sort of Air 2 Genie nuclear rocket for Soviet bombers, which just to me seems diabolical. Did the Brits play around with anything like that on the Lightning? Or Yeah, they did trial that, and there are photographs. I don't know whether it flew 
Okay. Being a bit of an aviation geek, it was trialed on a Mark IIa Lightning at Wharton, and it was a little white rocket. I guess it looks about six or seven feet long with a couple of little tiny fins at the front and some fins at the back. Mm. Again, being typically British, we put the Genie nuclear missile and we actually fitted it onto the side of the fuel tank. (laughs) (laughs) I guess as well, you know, that was of an era where they just, now it is laughable, isn't it? Where you think these guys would have gone off and seen these hordes of Soviet bears and bisons and backfires and whatever, Mm -hmm. and launched a nuclear warhead into the middle and hope they took out five or six of them. Right. What were they thinking? I'm glad that we live the version of history that we do, because if that had been tried, I think we'd be all in a big mess right now. Yeah. Although we're already kind of in a mess, but anyway, let's move on from that. All right. So the next item on my list here is strengths and weaknesses. And this is clearly a, an iconic and somewhat eclectic aircraft, dare I say, but uh, what are your favorite strengths and weaknesses of the Lightning? Realizing, right, it's not a Hornet, it's not a Viper, it's not an SR-71, but it is fast, it is unique. So what do you like and what do you hate about the Lightning? I'm often asked that question about comparing the Lightning to the Phantom, whatever, and, and I've often said that to go to an air show, an air display, go in a Lightning, go to war, go in a Phantom, because from the strength side of it, it was a good looker. It was a great air show performer. But to go to war, I wouldn't have really loved to go to war, especially at night in ECM or something, you know, miles over the North Sea. Strengths of it, it was, to me, that ultimate man-machine interface. You were absolutely at the edge of your capacity trying to operate a lightning at night on your own low level over the North Sea at night, <laughs> operating at pulse radar with no ECM capability, doing a vis ident. To people who listen, a vis ident is when you have to go from a radar to a visual scenario at night or in cloud. You know, you were working so hard trying to fly the airplane, not fly at the sea, keep the guy on radar, keep him locked or unlocked or whatever you're going to do. So it was a challenge and the satisfaction, I guess, were the good things about it. On its strength side of it, it had unlimited power. Again, going back to admissions of ineptitude as a young pilot, I flew a Lightning with the overwing tanks on. Uh-huh. We took off and we were doing a trial sortie, so the airplane was very heavy. As soon as we got airborne, the target aircraft went tech, and so we got called back to base. And I was operating away from home, had a whole stack of fuel within the overwing tanks. And I thought, I'll just impress the locals because we were away from base, and I'll do some burner circuits, and I'll just do some flying around visually in reheat. And I remember trying to pull around finals as hard as I could beyond the heavy buffet. And I don't know if you ever, you're probably not as stupid as me, but I remember getting this sort of feeling that I was in an elevator. So I could sort of get this sort of sixth sense that we were sort of pointing towards the runway. We, I said, I, I could just feel that all the fields and the pylons around me were sort of coming up like an elevator around me. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realized that I was going forward, but I was also going down pretty quickly as well. And I was probably in the way deep buffet, light stall, whatever. And I suddenly realized, wow, I've screwed this up. I just rolled off the bank and I put both reheats in and they fortunately both lit and I just powered my way out. And that was its strength. You know, if you realize you'd screwed something up, you could power your way out of it. You know, it was a very unforgiving airplane, but it would get you out of trouble if you had to. Great equalizer. On the weaknesses, I think now with hindsight, the weaknesses outweigh you know, the strengths. You know, it was perennially short of fuel. It leaked fuel. It caught fire a hell of a lot. It was very unserviceable. The weapon system was prehistoric. 
the lookout, you were like a hamster in a cage, you know, there's all this ironmongery around you. It wasn't easy to taxi on the runway because of those really thin tires mm. and because all the aircraft leaked fuel and oil constantly. And because of where we were based, it was permanently raining or foggy or drizzly or whatever. <laughs> it was like a skating rink. So somebody described taxiing a Lightning, particularly the two-seater, was like sitting on a double-decker bus on the top seat and trying to steer it with a steering wheel because you were so high up. And if you put the brakes on and tried to do a left or right-hand turn, like on the piano keys, the runway, it would just skid around all over the place. <laughs> Only was it scary in the air. It was quite scary on the ground. <laughs> And yet so beloved by uh, the Brits. So uh, (laughs) that's the theme I'm seeing. All right. Next up on my list is notoriety. And boy, I don't know that we need to say anything more about this because clearly it's one of, like we said, only very few, probably the only known aircraft with the stacked engines. But was there any other notoriety? Was it in in any TV shows or was there a performance team or squadron or something like that? Yeah, there were a couple of, in fact, my father was in one of them. There was the 74 squadron with the Tigers, and they performed at Farnborough. And again, you know, I'm not trying to do some big plug, but I'm writing a book on the Phantom now. One thing which has really impressed me about the American philosophy is that when the Phantom came into service in 60, 61, wherever it was, they immediately went off and did a whole lot of uh, height records, speed records, how fast can you get from LA to New York, and they put the airplane on the map, and the, the RAF did the same with the Lightning. They took it to the SBAC Farnborough Air Show, and they flew nine of them even though it was virtually impossible to get nine serviceable, but they flew this nine-chip formation and they just did a whole load of fast flybys at supersonic speed. And my father told me that you know they all came past supersonic and then they smashed all the windows in the air traffic control tower and went supersonic and got told off. But it put them on the map, and I guess that's what notoriety is. And okay. even now, you know, when I meet people who are in their fifties and sixties. And they say, you know, what did you fly? And I say, through the lightning. They go, oh, wow, you know, I was six years old and I was at an air show at Biggin Hill and I always remember the lightning. And it's as if that light bulb moment comes on and they watch a lightning and that's going to be ingrained in their memory forever. And that's what gets them interested in aviation or that's what gives them that love of this iconic airplane. By the way, don't feel badly about promoting your books. That's part of the deal is uh, you're going to dedicate your time here today and we're going to allow you to pitch your products at the end here. So no problem. All right. So as you've alluded already a couple of times, Ian, we've got some listener questions. These are from our Patreon supporters who are kind enough to financially support our show. And in payback for that, they get the chance to ask some questions. So we're going to call this, ready, a lightning round. Uh-huh. Okay, sorry. So John F. wants to know, what is the story behind the overwing hardpoints and stations, and what are the advantages or disadvantages compared to normal underwing hardpoints? And I have to think, Ian, this has to do with the fact that the wheels fold up into the wings and probably makes it difficult to put anything under the wings, huh? Perfect answer. Okay. That's Next. it. No. <laughs> well, actually, that was a good question from John. The overwing tanks were fitted retrospectively after the aircraft was designed, and it was designed to be a UK aircraft. And then the RAF said, we actually want to take them to the Far East. So they want to go to Singapore. And the only way they could do that without refueling about 500 times was to increase the fuel. And they'd already gone to the maximum on the ventral tank. And in terms of British engineers, we come back to it again. The only way they could think of was to put over wing tanks on the top of the wing. And that was, as you said, Jello, is because the wheels folded back and the ailerons were at the end of the wing. So there's only a little hard point at the end of the wing where you could put a 1,000-pound bomb or 500-pound bomb. And so the 600-gallon tanks would go on top of the wing, and you couldn't 
in those days make conformal fuel tanks either because you had to take the hatch off mm. the top of the engine. It just became impossible. So it was quite a clever idea. They got 600 extra gallons. And when you go back to the very first flight of the Lightning, it flew with 600 gallons. And the very last Lightnings with the overwing tanks had 1,800 gallons. So they had three wow. times the capacity of the first ones. But you couldn't jettison them laterally. You could jettison the fuel out of a hole at the back. And you couldn't pull more than 4G empty and 2.5G and full. And they were subsonic. And they were known as overwing tanks or overburgers. <laughs> jokingly, or just ferry tanks. Sure. Ferry as in to get somewhere. But hold on, you, you snuck one in on me. So bombs, I didn't know anything about bombs. Did this have an air-to-ground role? And did you ever use the cannon for air-to-ground? Yep, that was in the export, as I mentioned, that the export was beyond me because I didn't fly the export version. That was Saudi Arabian Q8. They developed a recce pack, which fitted into the interchangeable weapons bay on the front there with a day-night recce capability. And then they had bombs or snap rockets on the wing hard points which on the addo to the wing, and they used the gun for air-to-ground. Oh. It was a halfway house because it had no inertial nav system. It was like a supersonic hunter, or it was still map and stopwatch and a rudimentary gun sight, weapon aiming. All right, so getting back to the tanks and the range, Chris Lutton wants to know, what was your longest flight without aerial refueling? Because we didn't really harp on it too much, but this aircraft, as you did allude, <laughs> is pretty fuel-limited. And again, it's a point-defense fighter or interceptor, so that's okay, but... What was your longest flight without refueling? Well, to go off piece completely, my shortest flight was 11 <laughs> minutes from breaks off to landing and using all the fuel in a 1v1 combat. Wow. My longest flight, me personally, actually, I don't actually know that answer, but I think it's probably something like unrefueled, an hour, 10, hour, 15, maybe, hour, 10 minutes. You were just holding the whole time, right? Yeah, but there were guys who flew the Lightning in Germany, and on the Mark IIa Lightning, they say that they had a slightly different Avon 200 series engine that was slightly better matched to the intake or fuselage. It's very esoteric, but they used to do a technique where they'd go up to altitude, they'd shut an engine down, and then fly on one engine, and then they'd start the other engine up and relight that, they claim that I think some guys got slightly over two hours unrefueled. Yeah. But that was then later banned because when you shut one engine down, there was the risk of the fuel leaking from the shutdown engine onto the top of the other engine. And then when you relit it, it would catch fire. <laughs> I do remember shutting down an engine once only because I thought we were wow. going to run out of fuel. Talking about uh, yeah, and, and diverging slightly as well, when you were in full reheat, the fuel gauge is overread by about two or 300 pounds as a red mm -hmm. pounds then. When you came out of reheat, so say you had 1,800 pounds aside, you know, you think, oh, that's enough to get home. Then you came out of reheat and they go down to sort of 1,500 aside. And then you had this, oh, my God, thinking, how am I going to get home? And there were pilots who did combat. And somebody's going to write in and say, no, you're absolutely wrong. 9,500 pounds is the maximum fuel load on a Mark VI Lightning, I think, and 7,000 on a Mark III. There were guys who went to the tanker. I know you're going to be plugged in for 15 minutes, so, but they took 10,000 pounds of fuel. So they took more fuel wow. than actually. So they arrived on the tanker with probably, Fumes. I don't know, yeah, four or 500 golly. pounds of fuel. Yeah. <laughs> and I landed once, stupidly. I think I had about 400 pounds or something. Oh, gosh. And guys did flame out. There was a guy I know who flamed out taxiing mm. back in. We had that happen on a uh, carrier deployment fly-in. They got delayed, and a Tomcat landed, pulled off the runway, and flamed out. So, yeah, that's never good. All right, moving on. Jimmy Rangecroft wants to know, I heard from an ex-Lightning engineer that the wheels were inflated to a very high pressure and would get flat spots after just a few landings. Is that something that was commonplace among Lightning 
aircraft. So do you know anything about that? Jimmy, good question. I think uh, from memory again, three to 400 PSI was something that rings a bell. Then you added another 50 PSI if you had the overwing tanks on mm -hmm. because of the weight. As a general rule, we were taught from day one when you did the walk around of the aircraft, if the tire was worn to limits or very close, don't take it. They were like Formula One racing drivers. They could swap a tire over in three <laughs> or four minutes, jack it up, yeah. put a tire on. If it was a 15, 20 knot crosswind, you could scrub a tire with a heavy landing in wow. one or two trips. I burst a tire because I took a, an aircraft and I thought, yeah, it'd be fine. And I had two or three tire bursts on landing. Okay, well, so they must have been uh, pretty proficient at it. So they were able to do, like you said, the uh, Formula One type tire changes. So yeah. John Clark asks, was the Lightning a capable fighter in visual ACM engagements when compared to its contemporaries? So we talked about that. You did do a little hassling, but did you ever get to fight other aircraft? And how did the Lightning hold? You know, looking through my father's logbook, and he flew Lightning from 1961 to 1970, they didn't do much ACM in those days, really. You know, They certainly didn't do DACT as we know it today. And right. I don't know, it's, maybe it's a function of when you look at what went on in the Vietnam War. And, and I try to sort of draw parallels between what the UK was doing in 1964, 65 to 73, 74, what we were doing in the UK to what was going on in an actual war scenario in Vietnam. And I don't think we did an awful lot of DACT or learned lessons that was going on in Vietnam. So the sort of the Cold War era of when they thought the threat might be MiG-21, MiG-23, that's when we started going beyond 1v1-like type to maybe 2v1-like type to maybe 1v1-DACT, 2v2-DACT. But when you look at what aircraft we had in Europe at those stages, pretty much everybody in Europe, the Belgians, the Dutch, the Danes, the Norwegians, the Germans particularly, they all flew the F-104. So Lightning pilots tended to do DACT against the F-104. And doing DACT against the F-104 is to walk in the park, even for anybody, because it goes very fast, but it doesn't turn very well. Right. So the only aircraft that was a contemporary that was probably on the same scale was the Mirage 3, but then that had a single engine delta wing that flew in a, the whole characteristics of a delta wing. So that wasn't much of a match for the Lightning. And it wasn't until the Phantom came into the RAF sort of European service, did it have a bit of a match, but then the Lightning could outturn a Phantom pretty easily, especially if the Phantom had tanks on, but then it didn't have a Fox 1 capability. So, you know, it couldn't, had no RWR, you didn't know when you were locked up. And I guess it's really when the F-16, F-18, F-15 came in that it was just yeah. completely outclassed, you know, because trying to fight 1v1 against uh, an F-15, you know, the Lightning would do pretty well against it, but pre-merge, you never even knew if you were <laughs> locked on. So... It was a bit of a waste of time. It had its peak, I guess, from sort of 69 to 75 when it was good. And then they never developed it. So it, it was never going to get any better. And then, as we spoke about earlier, Jello, trying to fire it, doing a 1v1 with a missile, it's got a 2.5G limit when you fire it. Well, You have to perform a BFM error just to employ a weapon. And so that doesn't sound good. Yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. not good at all. All right, Jim Gundog wants to know, and these are his words, not mine here, Ian. What did Lightning Pilots really think of its appearance? Sure, I'm betting it was very functional, but as a looker, now you kind of touched on this earlier, but, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? Everyone thinks their spouses and kids are the most gorgeous, but Jim Gundog is laying down the uh, gauntlet here. <laughs> it's hard to answer because I don't know whether Jim's American or British or French or German, whatever. I think I alluded to earlier that, I think to all British people, the Lightning is the most, you know, the Raquel Welsh of the fighter world. But Americans, I know, sort of go, whoa, it's, you know, it looks really odd. But then 
the Brits look at the Phantom, and as the Phantom was delivered to the British Navy, apparently some rear admiral, when he looked at the wings tipped up and the stable tipped down, he said, has it been delivered upside down? <laughs> so it comes back to yeah. what you're used to. And every person I know who's a, an aviation nut in the UK loves the Lightning. And I guess they love it because it's single seat. It was silver mm -hmm. and polished. It's got that unique vertical twin stack. It's yeah. got reheat, uh, makes a big noise. Generally, they flew with no tanks on or you know stores or weapons. It was a clean, so it's the last of the GT model, you know, a huge yeah. sports car. It's the ultimate adrenaline machine, I guess. And that's why the Brits love it. Right. But it was also a British aircraft from the beginning, right? So of course you're going to love your home team. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Joe Kunzler wants to know what's the story behind the oddly shaped wings. And I think we talked a little bit about this at the very beginning, but there was a version that had different wing sweeps that they could go test, right? And someone decided 68 degrees was what you wanted for the performance you were looking for. Yeah, and that was done on a, uh, as you rightly said it, it was called the short SB5. And that had wings that were made of wood that were wrapped in aluminium mm. cladding effectively. And they could take not in the air, but they could change the wing sweep. I think it was like 55 to maybe 70 degrees, and they tried it out on things. And the only real difference on the Lightning production was it had a cambered leading edge and a slight crank to it on the later versions of the Lightning. But when you look at a Lightning looking vertically down on it, the swept wing and the tailplane, the stabilator, there's very little gap between them looking vertically down. So when you actually look at the airplane from above profile or below it almost is like this big delta yeah i guess that was designed in the era for speed okay jevin wants to know what types of weapons did the lightning carry on qra as you called it earlier quick reaction alert during its years of service i'll take a stab at this so some had guns some did not then there was the fire streak and the red top did i miss any nope spot on that's it and there was no other real choice really mm -hmm. but they were live weapons i think it's different from the u.s Air defense pilots never flew with live weapons. So we only flew with live weapons on a QRA, on alert, or if we were going to go off and fire a missile. Right. But generally, day to day, we never, ever flew with live weapons. We tried not to do that in the Navy unless we were somewhere where we thought we would need to. And then we had certain what we called fire breaks procedures where you would not box. Well, you would box sim if you were doing any kind of training, but you would never touch the master arm. You wouldn't even touch the pickle or the trigger. And you would just call your fake shots kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that way you had weapons if you needed them. But yes, day to day, especially here in the States, we didn't fly around generally with live weapons. In the French Air Force, they fly with a gun, live armed all the time. So you've always got a gun, which is live armed. Hmm. Well, my brain is racing with some jokes I could make, but I'll just skip all those and get to Michael's question. <laughs> Was there any specific disadvantage of engines situated one above another and not as usually one next to the other? And you had talked about that kind of critical spot, almost like a V1 cut, right, in a uh, civilian airplane where it's the worst possible spot where an engine could fail on takeoff rotation, which, oh, by the way, is when they do it every single time in training. Yeah. But otherwise, it wasn't a big deal, it sounds like. It wasn't a big deal for the pilots, but it certainly was a big deal for the engineers because mm. they were fitted into the airframe, literally shoehorned. It took, you know, a whole day to take one engine out. And then if you imagine that the fuel pipes would run from one wing to the other wing and across the fuselage, and if they leaked, they'd have to take an engine out to try and find the leak in between the two engines. So it was maybe now if they developed an aircraft like that that didn't you know, leak quite as much, it would be good. But in those days, it was a bit of a engineer's nightmare. 
Well, they definitely got better with that. I mean, the F-18 had one giant door they would open and then a special adapted cart they could wheel in under and lower an engine and replace it in theoretically just a couple hours kind of thing. But again, this is the Lightning late 40s technology built in the 50s, flown in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And yeah, what do you expect? Yeah. All right. Our last question is from Nigel Creel. He says, over the life of the frightening, his words, not mine here, Ian, was the double vertically stacked engines considered a success? Part of the unfortunate accident at Thunder City, and you'll have to talk to me about this, was hydraulic leaks around the engine that couldn't be accessed due to the packaging. So I probably should have read ahead because what you were just talking about sounds like a great segue into that. But what do you think of Nigel's question here? Yeah, it's a good question. The frightening was a term that actually <laughs> lightning pilots really hated, and it was never used by lightning pilots or lightning engineers. It was a sort of a term of a very derogatory term about the airplane. Derisive, yeah. Yeah. The accident at Thunder City in Cape Town was, you know, it was a culmination of hundreds of things of errors, culminating, as Nigel says, it was a fire which was down the back end. And the problem was that if you had a fire at the back end of the airplane, that's where the stabilator actuators were. And if it burned through that, that was it. It was lampshade yeah, time. You know, it, was, mm-hmm. it was curtains. And there was nothing to do about it. And the other problem that the Lightning had was that it leaked fuel constantly. So when it was parked on the ramp, there would be pools of fluid underneath it. And if it didn't have fluid, then there was something wrong with it. But <laughs> It hadn't been fueled yet. <laughs> yeah. There were various points where it should have been dripping fuel, and it was a trick to know where those were. <laughs> so when you look at the lightning accident record of however many they were, I can't remember now how many there were, but there was a huge majority that were engine fires. But there are also a lot of accidents with, you know, hydraulic failures, pilot error, crashing into the ground, sure. other reasons. So could it have been prevented? I guess it could have been handled slightly better, being diplomatic. That's fair enough, Ian. Boy, you've been a good sport. We've been at this for a long time, and I'm actually at the end of my list. So I want to ask what the future holds for you, and I want to give you an opportunity to promote anything you're doing. But So you're still running around. Are you doing any flying or writing, photography? What are you doing? Yeah, a bit of everything, really. I still do a bit of flying in the UK. I'm taking a bit of a sabbatical from flying the 787 at the moment, Ah. uh, doing a few other things to keep me occupied. I'm still writing books for my own company, which is firestreetbooks.com. I'm working with a guy at the moment on a thing called Black Arrows Media, and that's going to be pretty exciting next year or this year, bringing lots of aviation-related things together to do with jet warbirds and training and Mm. things like this, you know, talking about experiences and what fighter pilots do and, and basically capturing like you do, you know, capturing moments in history for others to enjoy later on that you know, when we're not around. That's just a side effect, Ian. I enjoy this because I can learn something from it. And so everyone else is just secondary. <laughs> just <Yeah. kidding. laughs> okay, firestreak.com. Is there one particular lightning book on there you would recommend based on our discussion today? Yeah, all of them. I've done, uh, what am I up to? About seventh book now. And last year, Firestreak Books did the lightning manual. If you want to find out how a lightning works, what the weapon system was like, what it's like to fly, what it's like to engineer, that's the one to go for. But there's, you know, they're all pretty good and they're all full of photographs and diagrams and how it works and where the rocket packs are and the missile packs are and the radar. As I said, I'm doing one on the Phantom because that was so successful, the lightning book. I've decided to do one on the F4 Phantom. I did do uh, an F4 Phantom book before, but like you probably, I find everything in aviation pretty fascinating and finding out new things about how the Phantom worked and 
what the philosophy on the fountain was and how the Brits screwed it up and put bigger engines in that didn't really work and all that sort of stuff. All right. Well, we will point to all those on this show and on our website the best we can, Ian, because we want to honor your contribution of time today and expertise by hopefully directing those who are interested to go over to your website, firestreak.com, or to probably Amazon. I'm guessing they can also find all your books. But either way, we just want to really thank you for your time today. And before we let you go, we always have a question about call signs. Ian Black, Blackie, hmm, can I figure this one out? Yeah. And actually, I was trying to think of something witty and funny to say to you, but the only thing that I could find that was witty and funny for you, Jello, was that the worst thing you could do as a fighter pilot was to try and tell your contemporaries what you should be called, you know, like Jester or Maverick or something. In England, uh, in the RAF, we always had very sort of staid and sort of dry call signs. Like, you know, if you were your surname was Miller, you were called Dusty. And if your surname was White, you were called Chalky or stuff like that. But it was the guys who sort of wanted to be, you know, the best fighter pilot. They would come up with a name like Razor or something or Killer. That's right. And as soon as you tried to make your name, then they became Dead Dog or Brain Death or something. You know, something yeah, really Buttercup. Yeah, Buttercup. Yeah. <laughs> we, I always found very amusing. So my nickname is really just a, a play on the words of my surname. So yeah. I think we discussed earlier, the only difference slightly was some people called me Blick. And then you know, the grand crew used to say to me, is that because you're always throwing up in the end, you're always sick? And I went, it's just, a, it's just another. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, so this has been the English Electric Lightning with retired Royal Air Force Squadron Leader Ian Black. Blackie, want to thank you for your time today. And uh, I think the biggest takeaway I've got here is guns and rockets on the front of fuel tanks and navigators are important. So have I missed anything else? Nope. I'm 100% behind you. <laughs> All right, Blackie. Well, thanks so much for uh, stopping by the Fighter Pilot Podcast today to talk about the lightning. It's been a lot of fun. Absolute pleasure. A superior pilot uses superior judgment to avoid situations which require the use of his superior skill. That's according to Frank Borman, U.S. Air Force pilot, NASA astronaut, and Jello savior, because as it is with these interviews, I'm just not that smart. It's kind of amateur, but I do my best, and I know you tune in, and you appreciate me anyway. So, All right, well, speaking of appreciation, how about Blackie? Soldier, F-4 navigator, lightning, tornado, Mirage 2000 pilot? Wow. That's pretty incredible. And once again, please go check out firestreakbooks.com. And he's got cool images over there. He's got some really cool books. And I'm hoping to uh, feature some of those on our shop page. And as well, Twitter is at Blicky, B-L-I-C-K-Y, and then Ian, Blicky Ian. All right. So let's see. I mean, great interview. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know if I wanted to talk about this or not, but I'll take a stab at it. I remember going supersonic my first time in an F-A-18. It was on my first solo. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out there. Okay, 0.98, 0.99, 1.0, Wait, that's it? So I don't mean to take away from me, Blackie, but I didn't think it was that great big of a deal. Maybe in the F-A-86 it is, but these days it really isn't. You don't hear anything different in the airplane. You don't feel anything different. But anyway, like I said, I, who am I to uh, Monday morning quarterback the gentleman? So. Yeah, just my experiences. All right, so for those of you challenged like I am for the conversion chart there, a 67-millimeter rocket, it turns out, is just slightly smaller than the 2.75-inch, what I called Mighty Mouse rocket, which is one of the names. Another is called the Hydra. And then with regards to BVR, 
missiles that are IR seekers. I'm pretty sure people have looked at this, and I'm pretty sure the reason it's not more of a thing, although it is on the AA-10, B, and D, but you've got to have a pretty permissive environment. In other words, if there's any thinking that you can only shoot one but not the other, or if there's any possibility of friendlies, well, I don't know unless they've got some sort of AMRAM mid-course guidance and queuing. And then even then, it, the IR seeker would have to tell the guidance it's getting, okay, yeah, this is the uncertainty volume and I see something, but yeah, maybe. But the problem is, right, if you send me out with my eyes closed for a mile or two, and then I open my eyes and I just look for anything hot, I'm not going to care what it is. If it's friendly, good guy, bad guy, target I'm allowed to hit, target I'm not allowed to hit, I'm going to probably go after the most juicy target there is. And so I think that's why BVR IR missiles are not that great. Now, that being said, I was not a Cold War pilot, and I assume if the klaxon sounded, the balloon went up, whatever expression here, and here come the Soviet bombers over the polar ice caps, or in their case, across the Norway or Finland Straits, that, hey, anyone in that direction... I mean, golly, we talked about the nuclear missiles, right? So IR, BVR missiles, sure, why not? But in practicality, I haven't seen those on any modern fighters. All right, so that's it. Thanks again, Blicky, Blackie. And uh, go check them out, firestreakbooks.com, as well as at Blicky Ian on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I follow him, and I see his updates all the time. And he's got some funny stuff, too, about tea and biscuits and other things. So, eh, worth following if you're on there. All right. Well, hey, we can begin wrapping this up. I want to thank our new Patreon mission commander. That's Alex M. And a new air boss, Dan Sanderson. And Dan, if you're surprised by that, it's because your son signed you up and he wanted to say happy birthday. He's turning 60 on February 11th. So happy birthday, Dan. All right. You know the drill. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or the Ministry of Defense, or their components. All right, and before I go, I just want to give a quick shout out to all those in my circle having health or family challenges and medical procedures. Talked about my son earlier. There's other people who I flew with who are having various issues. And there's also some folks going through some family things. So, hey, my prayers for peace and comfort are with you. All right, well, that will do it for this week. We'll be back in 10 days for a look at the Sepicat Jaguar. And between now and then, I've got some homework for you. I want to try something new. I want you to go out and tell one person about the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Could be a family member, could be a friend, could be a coworker, could be a total stranger. Anyway, go up to him and then say, hey, have you heard about the Fighter Pilot Podcast? I think you'd like it. It's hosted by a cool guy and he talks about really interesting things. All right. Now we always rely mainly on word of mouth to promote the show. So you can help us out. All right. That'll do it. Take care, be well, and we'll see you next time here on UK Month on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MOCK-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.